Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 96. Um, It's on page 499 of your pew Bible, as well as on the screen behind me. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For he is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees and forests sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is God's word. Please remain standing for the singing of hymn number 262. Rejoice the Lord is King.
Eden. If you're not still there, I encourage you to make your way back to Psalm 96 as we look at this passage together this morning. And as you find your way there, please pray with me. Gracious God, what a gift it is to be able to open your word and hear from you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that privilege, and we pray that as we do so right now, that it is your voice that we would hear. Uh, Not mine, not anybody else's, but your voice, Lord, Uh, and that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts. Um, Lord, give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you and your incomparable worthiness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were to ask my kids, what does a pastor do? I have a bad feeling that the answer you would hear would be something like, he goes to meetings. Not he preaches sermons, or he tells people about Jesus, or even that he helps people. He goes to meetings. Pretty sure that would be their answer. And I have to confess that they're more than a little right. Uh, So much of my work week consists in meetings, uh, sometimes with groups like a staff meeting or or elders, sometimes individuals or couples. But in reality, that's true of any industry. A lot of our kids, regardless of what our vocation is, would probably come up with a similar answer. What does an engineer do? What does a sales rep do? What does a teacher or a lawyer or a consultant do? They go to meetings. And again, I have to confess that that I have a love-hate relationship with meetings. There are some that I genuinely enjoy and wouldn't miss for the world. There are some that I'm ambivalent about. I don't really care whether I make it or not. There are some I will do virtually anything to get out of. And I know that I'm not alone. Uh, Some of us have made an art of dodging meetings. We've got too much work. I'm I'm too behind in my work to be able to make it to the the sales meeting today or the staff meeting or whatever. Or or something has come up at the last minute. My hands are tied on this. Or we double book ourselves accidentally. Uh, and, and you can apply that really to, to missing work more generally speaking. You can apply it to our kids trying to get out of school. We, we make an art out of finding ways out of those kinds of, of, of meetings. You know, your, your kid wakes up just a little bit sick and they're just too sick to go to school today. If it's a birthday party or there's some sort of fun field trip, there's a miraculous recovery all of a sudden. And the reason that we're ambivalent or or try to get out of meetings or school or work or whatever it is, is because we simply don't see the value in being there. That's the reason we find ourselves ambivalent about these things. My interest and enthusiasm, my consistency or focus, my level of commitment or my eagerness to contribute, all of that depends on on the value I place on what we're gathering for. Is it worth my time? 
or is my time better spent doing something else? And the measure of that is usually what I get out of it personally. Is the meeting valuable for me personally? Is it going to help me grow? Will it advance my career? Will it showcase my expertise? Will it result in income? Will it be fun? Will it make me feel better? What am I going to get out of it? And that's how I determine the value of whether or not I want to be there. One of my greatest concerns for the church today is that Sunday morning worship is little more than another meeting for so many Christians. It's become rather optional. If I feel like it, or if I feel like I'm getting something out of it, I'll go. I know it's good to do, unless there's something better to do that morning. In fact, just to be completely honest, we wouldn't dare miss work for half of the reasons that we'll miss church. I was just kind of tired this morning, and so I didn't feel like going. Imagine saying that to your boss on why you didn't show up yesterday. It was a late night the night before. Uh, The weather was perfect for the beach. (laughs) Try that one. Or, I'm going to miss work for the next three months because they scheduled my kids' sports practices and games at the same time. Harsh, but true. And, and, you know, you might be saying, well, isn't that kind of legalistic? To view church as not as optional? Uh, Isn't worship... What we do with all of life, anyway, not just Sunday morning. And having both you and Pastor Bruce done a sermon series on how we're supposed to be the church, not just go to church, that church is, is not something you go to, it's something we are. Well, yes, it, it can be legalistic depending on the rigidity of the rules and the condition of our hearts. Everybody gets sick, everybody goes on vacation. Everybody has some matter come up. And yes, worship is more than a weekly meeting. Romans 12.1 tells us to offer our entire lives as a living sacrifice. All of life is an act of worship. That's true. And it's absolutely true that the church is the family of God in Christ. It's not the building, nor is it the event. It's the people. However... While both worship and church are more than a weekly gathering, they are not less. They are not less than that. In fact, the word translated church in our Bibles means assembly, gathering, congregation. For ancient Israel, that meant gathering on the last day of the week, on the Sabbath, Saturday, For the church since the first century, uh, that meant gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day he he rose from the dead, Sundays. But there is no such thing as a local church that doesn't gather or congregate regularly for worship. The Bible doesn't know such an entity. And so... Why is it so easy to be ambivalent or, or inconsistent in meeting together? Uh, it's a matter of value. 
When it comes down to it, it's a matter of value. My interest and my enthusiasm, my consistency and focus, my level of commitment, my eagerness to, to participate, all of that depends on the value I place on what we're gathering for. Is it worth my time or is my time better spent doing something else? And so how do I measure the value of gathered worship? How do we measure that? Of going to church, as we often put it. Again, the temptation is to treat it like any other meeting on our agenda. To value it based on what I get out of it. How interested am I in the topic? Or how personally is this going to benefit me? But what if worship... What if worship isn't like any other meeting? In fact, a meeting isn't even the right analogy. It's more like a meal, a feast, a celebration. And what if that meal and celebration isn't primarily about us? What if worship is meant to be our regular reminder and recognition that God is the center of the universe, not us? That's what we see in Psalm 96, a portrait of God-centered worship. And the reason we're looking at this uh, this morning is because one of our core commitments, our, our strategies for seeing Christ treasured above all things, is God-centered worship. Treasuring Christ is ultimately about worship, desiring Him passionately, uh, recognizing God's incomparable value, finding our unparalleled satisfaction in Him. So you might even say that worship is the very goal of our vision. To treasure Christ is to worship God. But God-centered worship is more than a goal of our vision. It's also a means to seeing Christ treasured above all things. Our regular reminder and recognition that God's the center of the universe. Our He's our greatest treasure and our declaration before the watching world that the Lord alone is king and that he's uniquely worthy of glory. And so look again with me at Psalm 96. This is a glorious invitation to worship. It's arranged in three parts, verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 10 and then 11 through 13 and and each section begins with this invitation or this summons to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Let the heavens be glad. And then that's followed by either a reason to worship, for great is the Lord, or for he comes to judge the earth, or the actual content of that worship. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so this psalm helps us understand both what we do when we gather for worship, and why we gather in the first place. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't tell us everything there is to say about worship, but it is a helpful summary. And so what I want to do is look first at the why. Why do we gather for worship regularly? And then the what. What do we do when we gather? We'll start with why. Why we gather for worship. What is the real value of setting aside time every week to come together as a church family for worship? Again, think of it as a meal instead of a meeting. If someone invites you over for dinner, 
or out to lunch, how do you decide whether to accept the invitation? You know, some of us might want to know, well, well, where are we going? What's on the menu? What kind of food are we going to eat? That might weigh heavily into whether or not I accept that invitation. Uh, Others might want to know, well, what are we going to talk about? What's the purpose of this meal? Is there an agenda or are we just kind of hanging out? Others might ask, well, well, who else is going to be there? Am I going to know anybody if I accept this invitation and go to this meal? And for others, it's, it's simply the question of, do I have a prior commitment? Or is there something more important that I need to do at that same time? But I would suggest that all of those reasons are actually secondary. The most important factor in whether you accept the invitation is who is inviting you. If you value time with the person, it doesn't matter what's on the menu. It doesn't matter what he wants to talk about or what she wants to talk about. It doesn't matter who else is going to be there. If you value time with the person, you're going to accept the invitation. And if you value them enough, it doesn't even matter what your day planner says. You will rearrange your schedule to make that meal happen. In the same way, the reason that we gather for weekly Worship is not really because of what's on the menu and whether it appeals to my personal tastes or what topic's going to be discussed and how interested I am or how relevant I think it is. Nor is it because I'm going to see certain friends there or my friends aren't there so I'll do something else this week or it's convenient and there's nothing else I really need to do right now. The reason we gather weekly is because we've received an invitation from the king. And he is infinitely worthy of us accepting it. That's the emphasis of our psalm. And it offers no less than five reasons why God is infinitely worthy of our worship. First, he is great. Look at verse 4. And we'll get a running start with verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord... And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. There is no one bigger or more important to receive an invitation from than the God of the universe. If you're a, if you're a Pats fan, as all God-fearing New Englanders should be, and you get an invitation... You get an invitation to hang out in the locker room before the game with Tom Brady. Are you going to rearrange your schedule to make that happen? Are you going to inquire beforehand to make sure the hors d'oeuvres are gluten-free before you decide whether or not to accept that invitation? No, because he's the GOAT, greatest of all time. I mean, even a Broncos fan wouldn't pass up that invitation. But multiply that greatness by infinity and stretch it across eternity. And that's the majesty of the one who invites us to gather weekly in his presence. He is to be feared above all goats and all gods. He is great. That's the first reason. 
Second, he's unique. There's no one else like him. Verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So it's not just that he's the greatest. He's the only true God. Everything else is a cheap, idolatrous imitation. A worthless idol that will let down any who trust into it. Trust in it. Every other God, little g, is created. But the Lord is the creator. He made the heavens. And He invites us into His presence. Third, He's beautiful. He's not just great and magnificent. He's not just exclusive and unique. He's also beautiful and wonderful. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Our hearts are drawn to what we find beautiful in life. But the most succulent meal, the most exquisite flower, the most breathtaking work of art, the most sublime symphony are all but a faint echo of the splendor and beauty of our God the God who invites us into his presence. Fourth, he is the king. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That is, he rules as king. As one of my professors, Dan Block, has said, worship is fundamentally an audience with the king. The Lord is the king. But we don't have a very good analogy for that in America today, uh, for understanding the gravity of being invited into the presence of the king. Uh, For starters, as New Englanders, we kind of pride ourselves in having thrown off the tyranny of the British crown. Uh, And the president's not a very clean parallel. It's an elected official, limited powers, and many find reasons to refuse an audience with the president out of protest. And so we don't have a good analogy to see the gravity of the invitation to go and meet with the king. But imagine a king who is both perfectly just and indescribably merciful. A king who not only rules you, but loves you. Who not only loves you, but made you and then gave his life to save you. That's our king. King Jesus, the king who established God's kingdom on earth through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. He lived his life as a perfect embodiment and representation of God's kingdom on earth. Then he gave that innocent life on the cross to bear the penalty of our rebellion and insurrection against the heavenly king. And then he rose from the dead that to give new life to all who turn from sin and trust in him as king and savior. It's through faith in Jesus that we even have access to the king. We don't deserve to appear before God. None of us can demand an audience with the king of heaven any more than we could demand an audience with the queen of England or president of the United States. We have a gracious invitation into his presence, one paid for with the very blood of his son. An invitation to come feast with 
the king. Then fifth reason that God is infinitely worthy is a direct implication of the fourth, that God the king will establish justice. He's going to make everything that's wrong in this world right once again. So continuing in verse 10, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then verse 13, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. And this is not judgment in an exclusively negative sense. The the idea here is that he's going to render judgment. He's going to decide for what is right and what is wrong and bring justice to the situation. So the justice that Jesus accomplished in the cross and resurrection, he's going to apply to the entire world in the end. This king is going to make all things right. And that king invites us into his presence. Worship is fundamentally an audience with the king. And so gathering for worship, why do we do it? We gather on Sundays as a regular reminder and recognition that God is king, that he's the center of the universe, not us. Now contrast those reasons for why we gather. God is great. God is unique. He's beautiful. He's the king. He brings justice. Contrast those reasons with some of the typical reasons people go to church today. Will I like the cuisine or the style of music? Or the songs? Am I interested in the conversation topic? Do I find it relevant to my life? Will I see my friends there? Do I have anything better to do? And so our default reasons, if you think about that line of reasoning, our default reasons for gathering, for worship, if we're not careful, are often far more man-centered than God-centered. We turn worship into kind of a a consumer practice. Which reveals something about what we're actually treasuring, doesn't it? It makes worship all about us. And that can be true for churches as they design worship, just as much as for those who, who come and participate. As Dan Block observes, ours is a therapeutic culture. And even as we design worship, we want to be sure that when people leave the service, they feel good, better than when they came in. And perhaps if they feel good enough, they'll come back next week. The goal of designing worship services is often to fill a building rather than to invite people to a real encounter with God. But worship is fundamentally just that. It's an encounter with God. It's an audience with the king. He is the focus. He's the center. We don't fit him into our busy lives. We build all of life around him. And the pivot foot for a a whole life of worship, the pivot foot for, for living all of life in worship to God is the gathered worship of the church. It's the gathered worship of the church. That's why we worship. But what do we do when we actually come together? Uh, what does that worship look like? What, what do we actually do in encountering the living God who is with his people by his spirit as they gather in the name of Christ? 
And how does that shape our lives and promote the treasuring of Christ above all things? Even though worship is not primarily about us, that doesn't mean we are unaffected by it or unengaged in it. And so our second question, what do we do when we gather for worship? What do we do when we gather for worship? Well, if the reason we're gathering is because we've been invited into the presence of the king, then the focus of our worship is necessarily going to be on the king who invited us, right? We come together to glorify him. That's what the psalm invites us to do in verses 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So the essence of worship is to glorify God. That's what we do when we gather. To recognize God's supreme worthiness, and therefore our utter smallness before Him. And then to respond to His worthiness and His glory accordingly. With humility, with reverence, with joy and love. When we ascribe glory to the Lord, what we're doing is we're drawing attention to His greatness. We're pointing it out. We're saying, hey everybody, look how amazing and incredible our God is. We're putting a spotlight on Him. We are magnifying Him. Not in the sense of what you do with a microscope, where you take something that's actually really tiny and you make it look bigger. But in the sense of a telescope where you're looking at something that is you know, unimaginably huge and you're bringing it into crystal clear focus. We magnify the Lord. So how do we do that? How do we glorify God or bring glory to Him in our gathered worship? Well, again, the psalm gives us at least four things uh, to which we're going to add a fifth from Psalm 95. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. There are all sorts of passages in Scripture we could look at to understand this. Uh, Psalm 96 doesn't say anything about prayer or sacraments or Scripture reading or sermon or those kinds of things. Other passages of Scripture do talk about those things. But, but this is a helpful summary, I think, in terms of what it looks like for us to glorify God. So first, we glorify God by singing. We glorify God by singing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. We glorify God. That's why we spend time singing together when we get together, because we want to glorify God. And and, and singing is a fitting response to entering God's presence. It's, It's a joyful response. It's In a lot of ways, music is the language of the heart. It engages us in a way that's beyond just what we're thinking about. It brings our hearts in alignment with our minds if we're paying attention. And and, and that engagement with the heart, that's what it means when it tells us to sing a new song. It's not just talking about, you know, you got to come up with new songs every single week or something like that. New songs are great, but it's 
a response that will match the freshness of God's mercy, which is new every morning. So, so we, we want to sing out of the fresh experience of God's mercy, a new song that gives glory to him. Now, when we gather, praise should not be the only kinds of song we sing, songs that we sing. Uh, often today, the, the, the diet of songs is exclusively praise songs, make, you know, praising God, declaring how great he is. That must be an important part of it. But if, if the psalms themselves are going to be any sort of guide for us, there's all sorts of other kinds of songs we ought to sing when we get together. For instance, lament. You know, the psalms are filled with lament. Do we ever lift our voices to cry out together over the brokenness of this world, singing, How long, O Lord, until you act to bring justice? Do we ever sing those kinds of songs? And so singing brings glory to God, singing praise and singing other kinds of songs, songs of confession, songs of lament. But we glorify God by singing. Second, we glorify God by rehearsing the gospel. By rehearsing the gospel. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So so we magnify God, not only by exulting in who he is, but also by declaring what he has done. What he has done. Which, from the psalmist's view, is, is most likely looking back to that climactic act of salvation for ancient Israel, the Exodus. From our point of view, we look back to the cross as that great act of salvation God has accomplished for us. And, and even the word here for tell, uh, tell among the nations, even that word itself means to bear good tidings or to bring good news. It's the word that gets translated when you put it into the Greek, into the New Testament as preach the gospel. It's the same word. We glorify God and we edify each other. We build each other up by rehearsing again and again, day by day, the good news of God's salvation in Christ. The good news that saves us and the good news that sanctifies us and makes us fit for his presence when we gather. And the good news that gives us the strength to walk with him day by day. We never outgrow our need for the grace of the gospel. And so we need to remind ourselves of it. We need to sing gospel-saturated songs. And we want gospel-centered sermons and gospel-laden prayers because we glorify God by rehearsing the gospel. Third, we glorify God by giving. Bring an offering. Come into his presence, into his courts. Worship is not simply what we do with our mouths or with our hands in service. It's also what we give to the Lord from our hearts. Now, ancient Israel had a a system of tithing. Under the new covenant in Christ, it's not about a specific percentage, but a sacrificial generosity that comes from the heart to give in such a way that it affects your lifestyle. That's a way to think about it. To give generously from the heart, not under compulsion, not because so-and-so is going to see what I do. But we give from the heart, in, in sacrificially, in such a way that it affects our lifestyle. 
We have to live differently because of our generosity. Because what we're ultimately saying is that my treasure is not my stuff. My treasure is God himself. That's what we're saying in our giving. Now, you probably noticed we don't actually take up an offering as part of our worship service on Sunday mornings. We have the boxes along the back wall where people want to give to the Lord's work. They, They can do that there. Maybe we should do something like that because giving is an act of worship. Something we can talk about, um, but, but whether we do it together in the service or on our way out the door, giving to the Lord is one of the ways that we glorify God. Fourth, we glorify God by announcing to the world that he's the true king. So verse 10 again, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Declare to the world that Yahweh is the true king. That's part of what we do. There is a witness to our worship. The simple fact that we gather regularly on Sundays for worship is itself a statement of the worthiness of God. But there's also a verbal declaration. As we declare that he's the true king, that declaration ought to redound to the ends of the earth, as, whether as people come and see or as we go and tell. That the Lord alone is king and he's uniquely worthy of glory. Nothing else out there that we're tempted to give our glory to or tempted to find our identity in or our satisfaction in. Nothing is worthy. Nothing's actually going to satisfy. The Lord alone is king. He's, he is it. And his son is Jesus and he is with us by his spirit. His son came wants to establish that kingdom and give his life as a ransom for sin, he's coming again to bring justice to the earth, to bring final judgment to those who reject him and everlasting salvation to those who receive him in faith. And when he comes, he will make all things new. He's the king. He's the king. And because he's going to make all things new, even creation itself is invited into the worship in verses 11 and 12. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice, the sea and all that fills it. So we glorify God by announcing that he is the true king. And and we could add other things to that list uh, from other passages of Scripture. We glorify God in the preaching of his word. We're going to talk about that next week. We glorify God in the prayers of his people. We're going to talk about that the week after that. We glorify God in sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But there's one more way that we glorify God in our gathered worship that I want to mention this morning, which actually comes from the previous psalm, Psalm 95. And that is this. We glorify God by hearing and obeying the King. We glorify God by hearing and obeying the king. We've been invited to a meal to feast and celebrate in the presence of the king. But the one who invited us is the meal. We've been invited to feast on God himself. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. But this God who invites us to come taste and see, reveals himself to us 
through his word, through what he says. And so to feed on Christ is to feed on his word, to hear and obey the king. That's what we've come to do. And Psalm 95 makes this point. The psalm itself is very similar in in structure and focus to, to Psalm 96. There's an invitation to worship followed by the reasons and then even has an emphasis that God is the king. You know, the Lord is great, a king above all gods. But look at Psalm 95, verse 6 with me. So first you have an invitation. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Invitation to worship. Then the reason. For he is our God and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then comes the response. And that's what I want us to see. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We glorify God by hearing and obeying the king with an open and soft heart, which is more than just understanding the information. It's meeting it with faith as that word is proclaimed. Not turning a deaf ear or a dull heart to God that's been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as as Hebrews 3 puts it. But as the Spirit works within us, we receive that word with faith, and put it into practice. Of all of the things that we do when we gather to glorify God, singing joyfully, rehearsing the gospel, giving, announcing God's royal reign, this is arguably the most important part. Hearing and obeying the king. Because what the king says to us in his word is far more important than whatever we say to him. He's the king. And what we do with what he says and what the Spirit does in our hearts with it to transform us, that is what translates worship, that's what translates gathered worship into all of life worship as we go forth. What we do with what he says and what the Spirit does to transform our hearts according to it That's what translates this worship into all of life worship as we go forth. And so we gather for worship because we've received a gracious invitation from the king who is infinitely worthy of all glory. And what we do when we gather is to give glory to God, to shine a spotlight on his worthiness through song, prayer, sacrament, sacrificial giving, declaring the gospel, receiving God's word through scripture and sermon, going forth with a transformed life in joyful worship. This is a God-centered picture of worship, which doesn't mean we don't get anything out of it. Quite to the contrary. We get God. He's the point. To The greatest gift that he can give us is not to help me feel better when I leave. It's not to figure out how to fix this problem in my life. The greatest gift God can give me 
is himself. To delight in his glory, to be satisfied in his presence through Christ, even in the midst of whatever mess I'm in. He's our greatest treasure. And so, how do we evaluate our worship? Do I treasure Jesus more as a result of gathering before him? That's one of the questions we need to ask. Do I desire him more? I may or may not have a personal taste for the, for the cuisine or the liturgical style or the music. The passage we may be looking at, that might not be something, a topic I would have picked to think about this week. But have I seen God? Am I more deeply satisfied in Jesus as a result of worshiping together with His people? Such that my life now actually looks more like Christ's life as I obey His Word? Do we look more like Him as a church as a result of our worship? That's the measure of worship. And that will not happen apart from this habit that God has given us of gathering weekly together. Christ will not be treasured above all things apart from the regular God-centered worship of His people. That is just a fact. Christ will not be treasured above all things apart from the regular God-centered worship of His people. This is our recognition of His supreme worthiness But this is also a habit that reinforces and reminds us of that worthiness. A truth that is so easily eclipsed by countless other passions and desires that captivate our imagination. How do I recalibrate myself regularly to remember that Christ is my greatest treasure? This is one of the ways God has given for that to happen. To come together and be reminded to recognize His worthiness And to be reminded that God is infinitely worthy. He's our greatest treasure. He is worth losing everything else for. When we forsake that habit, we're reinforcing to our hearts and to the hearts of our kids, not simply that church is optional, but that God is optional. That's the message that we're sending. It's His invitation that we're spurning. Something else is at the center of the universe and we'll work him in when it fits. But when we gather regularly, when we make a commitment to come together in his presence, to feast together as a family on Christ himself, we recognize and remember that he's the center of the universe, not us. We find our joy, our delight, our satisfaction in him And we declare to the world that the Lord reigns. He alone is king. He is uniquely worthy of all glory. May it be so among us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy. Lord, we confess that we don't always recognize your worthiness. We confess that there's so many other things that captivate our imagination and our hearts. And yet, Lord, thank you for your grace and your patience and your mercy. 
Thank you that Christ is the one who makes our worship possible. And thank you that because you are king, because Christ is Savior, we have an audience with you. Lord, let us never take that for granted, but come to you with joyful hearts, eager to make much of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.